Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you again for this day. I thank you that we are here. I ask now that as we look into your word, that you would give me wisdom as we talk about these things that Paul has laid out for us. God, help us to come to the right conclusions and understandings of what he has to say. Lord, I pray that you'd help our hearts to be open to to hear those things, and if need be, to adjust or to change our way of life. Lord, I pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Two weeks ago, we started chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. We started it two weeks ago. Um, when we talked about that, I talked about the reality of the resurrection. And I'm going to be honest with you right now. I have not until this chapter thought about how the resurrection in and of itself impacts my day-to-day life. Okay? I haven't thought about that. Uh, I knew it was there. I believed it was going to happen. I told I was, you know, that's great. But I hadn't really thought about how that impacts how I live today. Does that make sense? And I've found that as I'm studying chapter 15, that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's talking about this resurrection, but he's talking about how it ought to impact how we live every single day. So two weeks ago, one of the first things that Paul points out is that the gospel message, this truth, which involves the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, will save you, is how he phrased it at the beginning of chapter 15. Um, and so we talked about that, how uh, I, I love how the scriptures talk about how you have been saved, and sometimes it says you're being saved, like in this passage, and then sometimes it talks about how you're going to be saved, and it's this all-encompassing salvation. You have been, you're being, and you will be saved by this gospel message displayed in the resurrection. Then we moved into verses 12 through 19. So that was verses 1 through 11, chapter 15. So last week, uh, we talked about the reality of the resurrection and focused specifically on the fact that that's a true thing and that truth has implications. And where Paul went with it, Paul answered the question, well, if it isn't true, then what does that mean for us? And I'll just give you a few of the ones that stuck in my mind from last week. Um, A few of those things. One is, uh, if it wasn't true, if Jesus wasn't actually resurrected, if he wasn't an actual human being, God in the flesh, if he didn't actually die, go into a tomb, and then was resurrected, if that didn't really happen, then that means some things. One of the things that Paul said was that our our faith and his preaching is, is useless. He calls it vain. I mean, be pointless. I mean, this is a complete, if that didn't really happen, this is a waste of time. Okay. Uh, he also talks about the fact that he would then be misrepresenting God. I had never, ever thought about that before, that if I'm getting up here going, God raised him from the dead, if that's not true, then I would literally be misrepresenting God. I mean, what a, I don't want to do that. I don't misrepresent God. But that's what Paul says would be the case if it wasn't true, but, but it is true. He also talks about how our faith would be uh, it would not produce anything, which ties back to how he started off, that it's a save, the saving faith. And then he ends with saying, we as Christians ought to be pitied above all people. If, it's, if Christ isn't literally raised from the dead, then we as Christians, it, people ought to look at us and go, those poor saps, right? But in fact, look, look at this. We, we gave up our Sunday morning. 
mean, this was a long week, wasn't it? For lots of people. And then to get up again and come around some more people, not as many as normal today, but to get up here and pop it and be around people again. I, I mean, poor saps getting up and hanging around with more people. I mean, wouldn't it have been nice to sleep in today? But see, if you're a Christian, you go, you laugh, but then you go, but not really. Not, not really, because this, this, is, this is the real thing. We, we ought not to be. I mean, we're the ones that are in on the big truth of reality. That God has a saving plan for humanity. I'm going to tell you right now, not everybody in the world knows this truth, and not everybody in the world believes this is true. But you're here because you do. What an amazing thing that is. Now, this week, big section, don't worry, not going to cover the whole thing. I'm going to kind of skim, okay? So don't worry. Some of you are already kind of sleepy. You're like, I love Jesus. I'm glad I got up today and didn't sleep in, but Matt, I'm also kind of sleepy. Okay, that's okay. That's all right. I'm going to hit on some of these things. So I'm going to start with some commentary because there's some interesting big ideas here. In fact, there's a couple things that I'm going to read read through this passage and there's going to be a couple ideas I'm just going to mention, talk about what they mean. I'm going to be honest. Again, I would never lie to you anyway, but I'm going to be honest. There's a couple of those things in there that kind of blew my mind a little bit. You you have that mind-blown experience. I was reading and then I went, I was sitting at the table and I just looked back and went, I mean, I, I didn't literally do it with my hands, but I felt like my mind was right? You ever had that experience? Usually when I have those, I kind of sit there for a few minutes like, huh. You ever make that sound? Huh. Hmm. A couple of those in there. So I'm going to get through this commentary. I'm going to try to go quickly. Five, ten minutes tops. At the very end of the part that I'm going to discuss, there's a couple of very direct applications that Paul gives. Ten minutes before I left this morning, you can ask Charity, I actually told her this on the way. Ten minutes before I left this morning, I was having trouble taking these truths, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and the, Paul's application, and they were bridging together like this, but there was one little piece in the middle, and I was, I was having trouble. Get, like, I know the connect, but I wasn't, it wasn't, in the word I used this morning, coalescing, right? You know? Ten minutes before I left this morning, this little light bulb went on. It wasn't a big one. It was more like a Christmas light, light bulb. All right? Bing. And it, that last little piece, I went, oh, 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 oh. That's where it connects. So, we're going to look at this. I think I just turned my clicker off. There we go. So let's take a look here. We're going to go to verse 20 of chapter 15. Now, I've got it up here. I'm going to have it up here on the screen for you if you, if you need to look at it that way. I mentioned this one last week. Paul said, if it isn't true, right? He's talking about if it isn't true, it means this, it means this, it means this. And then he gets into that little part and then he goes, but in fact, and that, that word is translated, in fact, means like right now, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's true. The first fruits, I also mentioned this last week, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you remember last week what I was, when I was talking about first fruits? What that was talking about. Anybody remember that at all? That was here last week? Yeah? Somebody tell me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's, it's kind of this idea, especially in their agricultural society, they would have latched on that pretty quickly. I think we're, we're going to get that more so than somebody that lives in a big city. I mean, we, we live growing up around agriculture all the time. You can't drive anywhere without seeing cornfields and bean fields and everything else. The first fruits are the very first ones. So the farmer goes out, maybe if you've had a garden, and you're waiting for, now the one I'm always waiting for is that first ripe red tomato. Anybody with me on that? that? I mean, tomato, I don't, are those even tomatoes that are in the store? The ones in the garden, I mean, there's just something unique about it, isn't it? Right out of, and, and so you're always waiting, every, and, and I, I know my dad's like this. He's like, when, when, they have, when they do have a garden and the, the deer haven't eaten the whole thing, it, he, I, I know he goes out there and he's looking at that tomato plant. There's one, and then you start to see one. I know you do the same thing. You start to see one. That it's, it's green, but it starts to get that darker green. And right on the top edge, it starts to change a little bit. You're like, oh, boy. And you might even drool a little bit just looking at it. It's soon. And then when finally that day comes when you go out there and you look at it. Now, the, yesterday it was almost, but you knew. I mean, it looked red, but you... You've been gardening for a long time. You know, it wasn't quite that. You go, out, you go tomorrow to be ready. You go out there in that first time. You look at that. You go in there and slice it. For me, it goes on bacon, <laughs> lettuce, tomato. The first fruit, but that, that first one. And, and that just gives you a taste of what you have to expect through the season. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's a taste of what's going to happen through the season of God's resurrection of his people. There's much more to come. Okay? That's what Paul's talking about. For those who have fallen asleep, he's the first one. Pick it. Now, let's shift commentary mode. Can you guys do that? Shift. Let's get our theological commentary mode. Let's shift in here. I actually really like what's, what Paul says next because it it tells me that God's plan of salvation isn't shallow. But it's actually very deep. What I would consider something that's well thought out. Obviously so. God came up with this. But I love that when you, you dig into something, every once in a while I'll, I'll watch a movie or read a book, and if you press into the plot too much, you go, they call them plot holes. Have you heard that? Yeah, there's something off it. But what a, why didn't they just... The thing I love about God's story is the more you press into it, the fewer plot holes there are. What I'm going to read next to you is an example of that for me. Um, those that were in Sunday school, what was the verse that we ended on? What book of the Bible was it out of? Exodus. Moses asked God... Show yourself to me. God, in showing himself to Moses, doesn't just say, this is me. He, he passes by and proclaims something about himself. He says, the Lord... Let me grab my notes here from Sunday school. He said, the Lord, to God, is passing by Moses, revealing himself. It says that he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. Right? He literally says, you're going to get a glimpse of my backside, is what, actually what he says. But then when he passes by, he proclaims something. The Lord, 
The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. How in the world can God be just and a good judge that that carries out justice but also forgiving? It's a tough thing to answer. Paul delves into this, getting back to the roots of exactly what the problem is. Listen to what he says here. For as by a man came death... Ladies, don't get too pumped up. That's mankind. The man brought it. Okay, no, how's that? Okay. Uh, For as by a man came death, by a man also, one, an individual, right? But this one came death. By by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So who was that man? Adam. For as Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I mentioned this this morning. Adam, the, the, the technical term is Adam is our federal head. He's the representative of a covenant-keeping people. So the covenant was laid out with Adam. Adam was our representative that God chose. He's going to be the representative. The covenant was pretty simple. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I made you. Don't what? Eat of the fruit of this tree. You know, all the other fruit. But not this one. Adam eats of that. Our federal head, representative of all of us. Paul puts it this way in Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We all sinned in him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Even if that wasn't in Scripture, I go, I know I'm a sinner. But it's interesting as you press into the story that you see what I would call legal precedence, true justice. There's there's something laid out here that literally happened. Adam, as our representative of the covenant, could have in that moment, in a sense, done what's right as our representative. He failed. We all sinned in him. That's what the Bible teaches. But just as through that one man came death... Right? God told him, he said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, dying, you will die. I told you guys in Sunday school this morning. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, you will be dead, dead, in the Hebrew. Dying, you will die. You will be dead, dead, is literally what it says. He immediately spiritually died. He began to physically die. As we all know, that's still happening, isn't it? And there's this imminent eternal death. But as one man, right? But then Christ comes in as a second Adam. Press into the story. Christ comes in. First Adam failed. I'm going to come in as the second Adam. The Bible even calls him that. Second Adam. Federal head, covenantal representative. I will keep all of the law, Christ says, and fulfill it. Now, the law had expanded from don't eat this one fruit. I mean, you're going to talk about law, read through the Old Testament books of the law. 
How in the world did he keep all that? He did. And then as he earns that righteousness, he says, I'm going to take your sin upon myself. So God's justice is taken care of. The Bible uses the word imputed. Then he imputes our righteous, his righteousness onto us. You dig into the story and it makes sense. And Paul is just alluding to this here. Let me get to the next two verses because the next one is, is a little bit of a, for me, I don't think it's going to happen for everybody, but for me, my mind was blown a little bit in these next two verses. So we dig into this and there's, there's an order that Paul lays out. He says this, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, federal headship, comes in, earns, lives it, dies, taking the penalty, is resurrected, first fruits, the beginnings of something different and new. Then at his coming, so, so there's that event, about AD 33. Here we are, uh, 1,986 years later from the death. Here we are in this middle time. There's a time coming. There's this thing coming. That's what it says here. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. So he's the first fruit. So that first tomato, right? The rest of the harvest is going to come all at once. Christ is going to accomplish this. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, or when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Now, follow with me for a moment. He came in this middle time that we're living in. The Bible calls it, even though it's been going on for almost 2,000 years, 1,986 years, even though it's been going on that long, it's all called the end times. Not the end. The end hasn't quite come yet. The end. But here we are living in this. And it tells me in this passage right here that Christ is doing something. He is in the process, through the Father, of all things being, being put in subjection under His feet. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power, after that's done, right? That's when the end is going to come. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Now, Oh, there was a mind blow. I just, I heard it. It was a verbal mind blow, and I heard it. Listen to it. Okay. He goes on. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed. So there's all these other enemies being destroyed. Without digging too much, was there some that were destroyed immediately, maybe at this point? Is there other things being put in subjection? For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed, the final one to be destroyed, is what? Death. I know we wish that was the first one, don't we? It's not. He says that's the last, the last one. When that happens, that's the resurrection, then comes the end. If we go back to the last one, right? Once they're all done, then comes the end. 
must reign. Now the next, Paul's going to now quote, adding to this thought, he's going to quote something from the Old Testament. This is, a, it's, I believe it's Psalm 110. It is the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. The one that gets quoted more than any other Old Testament passage is what Paul quotes next. For God has put all things... God the Father. So he's building out. He's going back to the Old Testament. God has put all things in subjection under His feet. So God the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who puts all things in subjection under Him. In other words, don't, don't, don't get lost in that. He's saying... God is going to put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, except for God the Father himself won't be in subjection. That's all that Paul's saying. When all things are subjected to him, God is putting all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I heard a a pastor one time say, when you start digging into this whole redemption plane, you start to realize it's way less about you and me and much more about something that was going on between the Father and the Son. God, in eternity past, created all things, sets a, about this plan of redemption. Christ, part of that comes, is subject to the Father, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is then resurrected. One of the few times where it doesn't say he resurrected himself. It actually says, if you go back in this passage even, it says he was resurrected. God resurrects him and then begins to place all things in subjection, rules, authority, powers, all these things that are work in this this cosmos, this world. He's putting all things in subjection or under Christ's feet. That's what the Father's doing. And then once it gets to this point here, where all things are finally in subjection to Christ, Christ says, it's perfect. We're just a part of all of that. This love that the Father has for the Son but then the love that the Son has towards the Father to say, you've given me all things and I'm going to give them back to you. And we're just one glimmer in the facet of that amazing jewel of God's redemptive plan. I think you could easily say, when, when you read passages like this, you can easily say, it's not about you comes to mind. Doesn't it? I was reading this and I'm going, this is, I mean, don't you sometimes make the whole like religion and church and everything, don't you make it a lot more about what's going on with you? What about me? You read passages like this and you go, you feel small yet privileged. You feel small in this big redemptive plan of God's, but you feel privileged that you get to be a part of it. That you, I mean, you get to know about it. Now, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to go through the next couple verses quickly. 
The very next one, I'm just going to mention, if you have questions about it, we can always come back to it later. Go back to the, the topic at hand. Paul's talking about the resurrection and that it's a real thing. This is a, a rabbit trail that's going to be brought to its completion at the end when death is finally defeated completely. Now, back to where we're at. Paul says this. He, he gives a couple of examples of why you ought to believe in the resurrection. The first one is going to sound really weird. I'm going to tell you before I even read it that Paul does not, when he mentions it, he does not say this is a good thing or a bad thing. He just mentions this is something that the Corinthians were doing. He sees it as a non-issue. He just uses it as an example to say, see, you've you got to be believing in the resurrection. Okay? He says this. Otherwise, what do people mean by, by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? That's weird, isn't it? We don't do this. Uh, the Corinthians may have, nobody fully knows what, what Paul's even talking about here, he, but he doesn't say keep doing it. He just says you're doing this. What we think is probably happening, the Corinthians were probably, and I, I get the, the heart of it. You had somebody that passed away but never had a chance to get baptized. Some of the Corinthians were going, I'm, I'm going to get baptized because I know, I know that they believed. I'm going to get baptized on their behalf. Paul just skims over. It's not important. What's important is he's saying, you're thinking about the dead. That's what he brings us up about. Never mentioned again in the Bible. If you have concerns about this passage, feel free to talk to me afterwards. It's not important. It's a side comment. Paul says, why, why would you do this? What's he talking about? You obviously, he's telling the Corinthians, you obviously believe in resurrection. You have hope in this because you're doing this thing here. And the second one, he says, refers to himself. He says, why are we in danger every hour? The apostles who are preaching the gospel, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my, my pride in you. I'm so, my, I'm so proud of you, Corinthians, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So Paul now begins to make this connection. So, so here, the, imagine me studying, building up, right? You might even be feeling it. All of a sudden, doesn't this feel like a shift in gears to something different? Okay, now he's talking about, I'm willing to die. And he was talking about everything being put in subjection. How did Paul make that thought connection? In fact, he says again, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? In other words, if you go back to his time at Ephesus, I mean, he's, just, he, he's not talking about literal beasts, but he's talking about the people that were attacking and persecuting. Well, what was the good of me doing all that if there is no resurrection, is what he's saying. And then he makes this statement I mentioned last week. So if the dead are not raised, there is no resurrection, actual resurrection. <laughs> Quote from a guy named Meander a few hundred years before Paul's day. From, he was a playwright. Probably coined it from even before then. And as Austin pointed out last week, it, this is kind of, hasn't this phrase kind of even made it down to today? We say it different ways, don't we? What was it? How'd you put it last week? Yeah. You, you heard that one? YOLO. You only live once. Y-O-L-O. You only live once. Do you feel the same sentiment right there? And it's not just about the eating or drinking. I mean, it's get, get what you can right now. Go for the gusto. 
I don't even think this is just simply living. I mean, th- this, is all, this could take all kinds of shapes and forms. If there's no resurrection, Paul's going, then that, that, you might as well go with that. Get what you can out of this life. Get the best stuff, you could say. Have the best stuff you can get here. To use the phrase of one pastor that I don't agree with this statement, get your best life now. I hope you don't get your best life now. If there's no resurrection, literal resurrection of this, this real life that's coming, then that's true. You only live once, and why not go for everything? Now, in my mind, I like things to add up. So I was left with a dilemma because I, I was reading this going, okay, but, but, but if there's a resurrection then my mind shifted into video game mode. So I thought, okay, in video games, if you've got another life, why worry? (laughs) So I was sitting there going, okay, but so if there's a resurrection, then it kind of feels like, for me, I thought, it kind of feels like for me, well, if I I believe in a resurrection, then I feel like, man, well, just, just live how you, then suddenly all those things, but Paul's going the exact opposite direction. He's going, since there's a resurrection, you shouldn't be that way. And I'm going, well, that's weird, because if I knew that when I died, I was going to be brought back to life, I might be like, I, I, I might scale a mountain. I'm not going to do that, because I would fall and be dead. But if I knew that if I was going to fall and be dead, and then I was going to get to come back again, and when I came back, it was going to be like a perfect body. I, I, there's a lot of things I might try. Like, man, just go out with a bang. Skydiving, no parachute. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul, Paul's coming to the exact opposite conclusion. He's been talking about resurrection, and he's like, because you're going to be resurrected, don't be that way. And I'm like, do you see my dilemma at least? Can you see that? Paul came to a different conclusion. And so I was, I was sitting there. Now Christmas tree light bulb light came on 10 minutes before I left for church this morning. And it's wrapped up in what he was talking about in this, what Christ is doing. I could have gone, there's a lot of other places I could have gone in Scripture to help me understand that and understand that, why this is important. But I, I wanted to go right from what, what is Paul saying? How did he come to that conclusion just from this? His thought of, I'm going to die and then I get to come back, means don't just do whatever you want. You ought to live for Christ. How does that make sense? I think it's wrapped up. I believe it's wrapped up in what Christ is doing. He is in the process from this point here, when he, when he was resurrected, to this point that's a little bit past today. I don't know how far over here, where the last enemy is going to be defeated, death. He's in the process right now of God the Father putting all things in subjection under his feet. I'm going to tell you right now, you will be in subjection to Christ at some point. It can either be now in willing subjection to our Savior, or it can come here, and I'm going to use this phrase, it it can come in eternal, defiant subjection in a place that we call hell. Hell. 
Some become in subjection to Christ now, and they say, you're, the, you're my Lord, my Savior. Some go, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want. If what God says is what I want, okay, I'll do it. But if what God says is different than what I want to do, too bad, God. Those people will carry that defiance into eternity and eventually they will be in because that's what God says is going to happen. All things will be placed, every rule, every power, every authority will be placed in subjection under the feet of Christ and then handed back to the Father so that all things will be under Him. And you can either do that now, willing, humble, saving subjection to the Savior of the world. Or you can fight it. Live how you want. But you're going to find that if you choose that path of life, it's ultimately how the Bible describes it in other ways. It's not faith, not believing, not calling on the name of the Lord, all the different ways the Bible talks about it. It's ultimately defiance to the king of the universe, and you will one day be placed in subjection under him, but it will be an eternal, I believe, an eternally defiant subjection. Hell is going to be full of people that go, I didn't want to do what you wanted then. I'm not going to do it now. You can let me burn. I'm not going to do what you want. Eternal, defiant subjection. Two applications. And then I'm going to let you go. Verse 33. You probably heard this one before. Every Christian mom told their Christian teenage son this verse. Don't be deceived. Bad company, bad, evil companionship corrupts, ruins, literally deteriorates those good, and the word for morals is ethos, Greek word ethos, we get the word ethic. It actually comes from where, we're like, where you live or reside is what it comes from. And so it's like you're, how you view, so you're, you're, the way you handle the world, the, how you live your life. Bad, now I'm going to tell you right now, I almost didn't do it, but Charity said I ought to tell you. The Greek word for company, sometimes translated companionship, is the Greek word homilia. And I thought, that's interesting. It's almost like the word homies. Been, I've been in the dean's office at DHS too long. Bad homies. Now I see you're never going to forget it, right? <laughs> these, these corrupt, bad, pointed the wrong direction companions, homies, will deteriorate or begin to break down, right? Like that really good pudding you made and you put it in the fridge. Have you ever seen it after a couple days and you hadn't stirred it? What starts to happen? It starts to break down, doesn't it? Especially if some knucklehead like took a bite of the pudding and then put their, their slobbery spoon back in. Have you ever seen that? You look at it like two days later, like, oh, what happened? It's been partially digested. Disgusting. The tear starts to break down. 
this verse out of context still works. This verse in context is saying this. You can have the right view of the world with this view that the resurrection is coming and I want to be in submission to Christ now. Being around some people with the voices and the words that they bring into my life is going to begin to break that view down. See, the right view is Paul's view, which says the resurrection is coming. I should be willing to die just to tell people about Jesus. That's the right conclusion. The wrong conclusion is, man, just go for it. Find what you want to do and do it. Live your life. Go for it. Follow your heart. Thank you, Disney. It's the wrong conclusion. And the people that are in this conclusion, they see you in that conclusion, sacrificing, and they go, well, that's dumb. That's stupid. I mean, you know how good this is? You know how great this is? You know how good and wonderful this is? I mean, do you know how tough that can be? You know how challenging it can be to, to continue doing these things that God tells you to do? those voices begin to seep in. And this stance that, that maybe you, you go, man, I'm willing to die for Christ, begins to break down. I would like to have a nice Florida vacation. Right? Why sacrifice? I mean, I could be saving this up. Man, I'm so tired today. Could just sleep in. Just, I mean, what's one Sunday? I mean, just one. I mean, do I really have to give 10%? I mean, give it all the time. Got this big bill coming up. I could not do it this time. Why give up these things? Faithful? Be faithful. Church? Be faithful. Marriage? Be faithful. And all. What? I mean, there's, what about, ooh. About this. It begins to break down. Most of those things, what Paul's saying, don't, don't be deceived. How do you get from that to that? Paul tells us right here. Bad homies. Bad companionship. Corrupts, destroys. I tried to think of a good way to say this so you'd remember it. I'll give you a point here. Are you ready for the point? I couldn't think of anything better. It's so good all on its own. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good ethics, good moral, good character. It ruins it, deteriorates, it breaks it down. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You're going to tell yourself, it's a, I'm telling you, if there's no other lessons that I, I, I want young Christians, old Christians, Christians at all, anybody that's been a part of this church ever, if there's any lesson I want people to learn, it's right here. I, I hardly ever talk about this, but I'm finding more and more how important this is. So many young Christians I've known, like, 
they, they, they hear it, they believe the gospel, but then they, they haven't broken. And, and I think there's this struggle because they, they don't break free of all that. Like, the, you're in this mix of people, right? Your Friday night gang, which another interesting thing, bad company. One, one of the scholars I read said that homily, it actually could have even been referring to uh, gangs in Corinth. Not like gangs that we think, but, but like these, it's the groups you're with, these people you've attached yourself to. And somewhere, I've seen young Christians that start here, but then they're still around. And, and I think sometimes they, they start off even by wanting to, to bring the gospel into this situation. And that's a, it's tough, isn't it? Because you want them to know the gospel. But this is also true. How? By the wisdom of God, you go, Lord, how, how can I be, be in but not of? I think for many of us, we need to take a step back and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to be with my Friday night gang. Used to it was one way. God, help me to go into this gospel-minded because, because they, they're on their way to hell. I am no longer headed that way. I, I, I want to endeavor to step into this, this group for the, for the sake, the sole sake of sharing and telling the gospel. Lord, protect me from being infiltrated by what they're going to say. Because they're going to say stuff, aren't they? It might be as simple and naive as just telling you about the amazing vacation they had on this island resort. I'm not knocking island resort vacation. I would love to take one myself. But, but in the middle of that seeping in, as Christians we go, that's great, but it's not what I live for. If I get a chance for that, that'd be awesome. Christmas, anyone next year? That'd be great. But hey, it's Christmas, I'm, I'm going to die. And I want to live this life in subjection to Christ. And Christ does not live for island vacations when we've got something else so much better waiting for us. I can live this whole life without that. Last thing, and I'm done. This last one will take just a few moments. Once again, Paul is direct and to the point. He summarizes that entire way of living with this statement. Wake up. He talks about that way of living, living for what you can get now, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, just, just living, man, I, I mean, I'm going to be resurrected anyway, I might as well just enjoy what I can and, and live, I'm fully live, I want to get the most, the gusto of life. Paul describes that as a drunken stupor. Now, don't lie. I know most of you have seen somebody or yourself have been in a drunken stupor at some point. People who are in a drunken stupor don't know what's going on. They're missing out on what's happening around them. Are they not? Wake up, Paul says, from your drunken stupor. Wake up. Just wake up. As is right. 
In case you're confused about what waking up means, do not go on sinning. Stop it. Wake up and stop it. For some, and if you've, if you've missed the little Christmas tree light bulb moment where I connected the two, if you missed it, this last little thing doesn't make any sense. But if you've been able to connect how he's gone from resurrection to how you're living your life this way and connected to the idea that Christ is bringing all things into subjection under his feet, that that's what this is all about. This era of time that we live in from Christ's first resurrection to when he returns is about Christ bringing things in subjection under his feet. If you've missed that, this last statement does, doesn't make any sense. But if you've caught that, you suddenly realize, because he says this, wake up, stop sinning. For some, have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I wonder if the some that have no knowledge of God are the evil companions that are corrupting you. There's some in your life can we say this to your shame as well? Do you have people in your life, friends in your life that have no knowledge? Now, they may reject, but do you have people in your life that have no knowledge of God? Paul says this to the Corinthians. I can say it to you. I can say it to me. If we have people in our lives that have no knowledge of God, we can say that to our shame. You've got a mouth. You know how to use words. What's stopping you? It's a shame that some are still in our sphere living and don't realize that we've walked away from that. We're in subjection under the Christ of God. But one day, when all things are in subjection under his feet, we'll kill the final enemy, death. have a different loaf of bread today. I want you to think with me, and, and I know I haven't called you up here yet, so don't fret. I'll call you up when I'm ready for you. Um, Jesus Christ himself, before he went to the cross with his disciples, what does he, what's he do? He stops, he sits down and eats with them. He tells them to do something so that they don't forget. I think there's a, a don't forget aspect in what we're talking about here that we, 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 we tend to forget that Christ really died. He really suffered pain. That really happened. Christ does not want us to forget. He takes the bread. And what's he say? Look, I have a real loaf of bread today. What's he say when he takes that bread? This is my body, which is broken. Can you imagine him maybe doing that? His disciples? My body, which is broken for you, pulling that apart, beginning to rip off more pieces, passing it around. This is my body, which is broken for you. Hands it out. This represents the new covenant. He says, my blood, something new. Imagine him pouring that out with his disciples. This body, physical body, this blood that's shed for you. When you partake of these things, do it, he says, in remembrance. Don't forget. Don't forget. 
I think I've got two guys picked out. Do we know who the two guys are? Oh, my word. Three generations of harmless are going to be serving you today. By the way, I praise God for that. I know not everybody has this. It's by his grace alone. Because I'll tell you right now, three knuckleheads right here. <laughs> we would have missed it big time if it wasn't for the grace of God. Right? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this bread and this cup. I ask now for your blessing on it as it's distributed today. That all who partake of this today as they take this bread and this cup and they hold on to it, Lord, I pray that you help them remember all that you've done. Help us to come to, from, from those thoughts of death and resurrection, help us to come to the right conclusions or that we ought to give up all that we have to serve and follow you. Help us to think of your sacrifice. Help us to think of your body that is broken, your blood that was shed. I pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.